Hello, hello, hello. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. It has been a while since we've recorded an episode and this is the first one in let's say what, four months? We had a lot of stuff going on. Um, graduated from medical school. There's just a lot of stuff, but we are back and we're bringing some excellent guests back on this uh, new, I guess, relaunch of the episode. Starting off today with a someone who is... Um, let's say quite out of my league in a sense where he is uh, way more qualified than I am. And I'm a little nervous, not going to lie for this topic because I don't know too much about it. It's not my thing. I'm trying to learn more about it. That's why we have him on the episode. And I think it'll be really valuable. But before we get there, I want to say thank you all for your continued support. And if you're not already signed up for the mailing list, please go ahead and do so because that's how you're getting all the updates on what's going on with the podcast. And with that out of the way, let's get into the episode. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. All right, everyone, we are back. And today we are talking insurance. Yeah, we're starting with a heavy topic, insurance. And today with me, I have the CEO of Suter Health, Atna, based in Northern California, who actually may be the youngest healthcare CEO ever. I think you can clarify that for me in just a second. And he's also the author of the new book, Rich and Dying, which uh, is subtitled, An Insider Calls Bullshit on America's Healthcare Economy. So welcome to the show, Jeb. Hey, man. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited for this conversation. It's something that um, we haven't talked to on this podcast, but it's a huge kind of like elephant in the room whenever you discuss medicine, insurance. So to start us off, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you became the youngest healthcare CEO? Yeah, so I think it's important to always highlight, you know, just in terms of my career, I started off as a health economist, uh, always wanted to go to med school, was pre-med uh, in undergrad, and then just found myself just pulling more and more towards the numbers of, of the healthcare side and the business side of uh, our sector. So I started off as a health economist, worked on the provider side, uh, managed a number of providers in these kind of value-based um different mechanisms. So accountable care organizations, patient-centered medical homes, things of that sort. Um, and then from there, I actually went to Silicon Valley uh, and did two startups. I worked with a renal care startup, really focused again on aligning the right incentives for anyone that's familiar with CKD and ESRD. It always feels like we're all just waiting for patients to come down the path uh, for dialysis, but really reorienting upstream towards CKD, you know, attenuation of disease progression. Um, worked in robotics as well, did a little bit of insurance, and then now finally it's come full circle, um, and I'm leading Sutter Health Aetna, which is a Northern California-based insurance plan that is a partnership between Aetna, which is you know one of the nation's largest payers, uh, owned by CVS. That's right. Yep. The local retail pharmacy chain actually owns a massive health insurance company. And then also Sutter Health, which is a 24 hospital system in Northern California, one of the largest integrated delivery networks in our country. So together, they've, they've formed a new company called Sutter Health Aetna. I know branding was very creative um, and, and it, it's pretty exciting. And uh, the fact that I'm the youngest one, I, I try not to tell too many people that. 
<laughs> well, we're going to highlight it here because that's an incredible achievement. And it looks like you got a lot of experience already under your belt, which is incredible. So where did this book come from? When did you decide to write it? Why did you decide to write it? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, I guess it's, uh, you always, everyone always kind of thinks, I mean, I got a lot to share. I got a lot of opinions. Um, and then for me, it was kind of three things. One, uh, it was just the culmination of getting to a point in my career where I said, I think I have enough perspective on enough different views of the healthcare sector to have an informed, holistic point of view. Um, so that was kind of number one is actually like making sure I understood their technology, the payer, the provider, the kind of ancillary advisory, some some call it consultancy. So having that was really important. Um, second was the fact that it was just this global pandemic. Um, and not only did I have more than enough time on my hands, although my, as I was telling you, my fiance was still waking up at 4.30 every day as a PGY9 and like going to work. Uh, I felt a little guilty that I was going to stay at home working for the past year. So I definitely had some hours on my hand. And then finally, you know, you get to a point where you say, well, shit, you know, 50%. Of you know, um, um, working Americans are millennial or younger. Um, things are going to change, right? We we I tend to think about millennials. I'm one of them um, as as just a, an absolute change of force and, and a force to be reckoned with. And for me, as most people don't know, employers, right? The reason why wages tend to stagnate so much is because the ever increasing cost of the healthcare benefits. So paying for health insurance usually costs more than just about anything else for an employer. Starbucks spends more money on health insurance than coffee beans. So for that, I said, you know, there's a problem here. It's not that sexy or shiny of a problem, um, but I'm going to try to at least open it up a little bit more and invite some people in to help problem solve with me. Definitely. I think that's definitely a huge issue. I've read a couple books on insurance. I can't say I understood that much just because I don't have the context, haven't worked in there. So um, there's a lot to talk about. But before we get to insurance and all of that, I want to ask you, since this is the preventive medicine podcast, what does preventive medicine mean to you from maybe an insurance side or administrator side? What does it mean to you? Uh, it's, it's easily one of the most important pieces of our entire business model. Um, I think few people actually understand that a health insurance company has some of the most inlined incentives to that of an individual, meaning if you are healthy, if you are proactive, if you are preventative with your actions, those are all things that a health insurance company wants to support. And I'm not speaking on behalf of Sutter Health Aetna when I say this. When you just look at how insurance incentives work, they collect premiums and payments from a number of organizations and individuals. And it is really a matter of how many, how much of that premium that they actually spend on care that then determines the profit margin. So as you can think, a healthier person or somebody that's more preventative in their action is really good for the insurance business model. So people are always, you know, anti-insurance. And I'm always like, actually, insurance has the most financial incentives that are aligned to any individual compared to just about anything else in healthcare right now. Yeah, if you, uh, I read a little bit about like how insurance started, I guess, I believe it's in uh, Texas somewhere, maybe Dallas, where a bunch of people just couldn't afford their medical bills. So they decided to put something together, which was called insurance at the time, I guess. And it was just people paying into a plan and overall reduce the cost for everyone. So I think at the end of the day, insurance is supposed to be a really good thing, but it gets demonized as we're talking about right now, just because insurance seems to be gouging everyone. It's just like this huge elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about, but it's always there and always just seems to be sucking money from people. And especially when you're talking about wage growth, um, that is definitely one of the reasons that wages haven't been growing. So interesting that um, the incentives are kind of aligned there. How can we kind of move that forward and make that 
practice? Because that's not typically what we think about when they're individuals and insurance companies being aligned. Yeah, you know, I, I think that it starts with conversations like this, first and foremost, is that we need more of our clinical friends to understand the fact that insurance is great for that exact reason that you called out, which is pooling risk, right? Um, if you don't do this the right way, you're going to end up marginalizing the marginalized within our country. So I don't mean to get political you know, on this podcast, but I do want to say that, you know, if we only think about ourselves, the folks that are born into situations that they can't control um, and have no way out, um, we have to think about them. And the public option or a government-funded option can't be the only option for those individuals. And so I think about getting more clinical partners aligned to this greater cause. And then from there, you know, I really do think it's important for us all to understand that when you're working towards changing healthcare from the ground up, you have to understand insurance. Okay, there's no way around it. It's where all the money flows. Um, so if you look at you know our country and you think about the 3.6 trillion dollars that we're spending, most profitable businesses for a clinician are going to be that of a commercial patient. It's very hard to make money with Medicaid reimbursement or Medicare reimbursement. Those levels are greatly lower. So what a lot of hospitals and health systems end up doing is cross subsidizing that that terrible cost structure that they're they kind of built on um, off of the Medicare and Medicaid and kind of government funded lines of business onto the commercial segment. And so if you don't understand how the commercial segment works, you yourself have will have a hard time building a business model that's actually sustainable going into the future. Because we really are at a point where this is about to break. You know, in the next four years, the Medicare trust will probably dry up. Uh, within the next four years, I wouldn't be surprised to see employers call uncle and say that they can't go any further. Uh, they can't continue to carry this type of weight. So it's really important that folks that are listening right here get more engaged because this is going to tell us where the entire country is going to go when it comes to healthcare. For sure. One of the things I really like from your book, uh, it's just this little quote is about trust, where when a patient goes to the provider, they're not really thinking about insurance. They're thinking about just what they're going to do with the offices. It's a level of trust where you're kind of trusting what the doctor is going to give you, the treatment plan and whatever the doctor says. And you don't really think about insurance there. And on the doctor's side, they're also not necessarily thinking about insurance. They kind of just bill it. Sometimes you have to get like pre-authorizations and whatnot. And it seems that physicians are also getting increasingly frustrated with insurance. Um, I don't know if you follow, there's uh, several like uh, Twitter famous doctors that have been recently complaining a lot about insurance after going through their own medical issues. So um, are insurance companies and physicians aligned? I mean, that's, that's probably one of the best questions, right? Are, are we truly aligned? Here's what I would say. Um, you know, I think traditionally and historically, people would say that they're misaligned. And the reason why they would say they're misaligned is because one of the best ways for an insurance company to control their cost is through something called utilization management. And utilization management is exactly what you're getting to, right? It is, it is controlling the amount of use. And so there are all sorts of levers that one can pull. And one of the most popular ones is prior authorization, right? So the insurance company is saying, we're going to deem if this medical intervention is necessary for this type of patient. Um, what folks don't realize, though, too, is that that also is a great step on behalf of employers and individuals. And you're getting to a point that's, that's I think, important, which is when you're working with a provider, you're right. 
there is inelastic demand on the patient perspective, right? If I think that I'm hemorrhaging from my brain, I'm going to have to be there, right? I'm not going to go walk out and say, I'm going to go shop this and talk to a few different doctors. There's asymmetry of information. I can't read an MRI or a CAT scan, right? I'm dependent upon the provider to give me that. Um, on top of that, there's no price transparency. I don't really know how much this is going to cost. The provider usually doesn't know either. And there's so many rules around what's covered, what's not covered, where's my copay coming in, the co-insurance, right? So as you start to build up all of those points, um, it becomes very clear that people have a hard time seeing which side of the coin they're actually on. Um, what I would say, though, is that over the last 10 years, we've seen a lot more of these payvider organizations. So payers acting more like providers and providers acting more like payers. And so if you look around the country right now, there's, there's over a hundred different models where payers have created health insurance plans or health insurance plans have purchased provider organizations. And I think that tells you something. It tells you the trend of where things are heading, which is that if you can combine a payer and provider into one organization, you have the most aligned incentives when it comes to adding value for that of the individual. And so, although it sometimes seems very tumultuous, what you're actually teasing out are the, the key strands that create value on behalf of one of the stakeholders. And then the one that you call it out, prior authorization, it's an employer. Right. It's making sure that we're not just spending money frivolously and that we have a control mechanism that's saying whether or not something's actually needed. That being said, does it create a lot of headaches and, and you know, a little bit of rub and angst? Absolutely. And we have to think about ways to automate that prior authorization process when we can and see fit. OK. Yeah, I think one of the things you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, currently we have trends going in the way we're more and more aligning uh, patients, physicians and insurance companies, pay, uh, payers in this instance. And uh, sorry if I'm not like completely over the lingo. I'm yeah. trying to I'm trying to get it. <laughs> but um, so we're getting more and more to the point where all of these are aligned. But currently they're kind of all over the place, especially because there's so many different plans There's so many providers. No one knows what's in whose plan. No one knows what providers covered. So in that instance, is that correct, by the way? Those yeah, trends continue? Right. And sorry, I, I go back between insurance company and payer. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's ever foot in the bill? Yeah. All right. And then, so I guess the question here is what should people know, I guess, about maybe trends going forward or from your perspective about, let's say someone has, uh, they end up in the emergency room for whatever reason. They don't really have a choice in who they see. The physician is whoever the physician is. We don't know if insurance is covering it. What do you kind of, what goes on in that perspective? What are your thoughts on that? Well, you picked a unique use case in the fact that, you know, an emergency department is going to be one of those, you know, relationships where, we, the insurance company, aren't going to get that involved, right? Because that comes down to if you're in the emergency department, we're thinking mid to high acuity, appropriate utilization of the ED, right? You're not using it mm -hmm. as CP. Yeah. Um, and, and if you're going in there appropriately, um, then the biggest name of the game is just stabilization, right? Just make sure that that patient is okay, and then we'll figure it out from there. Um, but as you get into some of these more primary specialty use cases, um, low acuity situations, that that's where things start getting interesting because we got to start talking about the fact that 
all providers are not created equal. I mean, you know that better than I do. Right? I meet, my, like I said, my fiance is a trauma surgeon and I've met plenty of her colleagues. And there are people that I am very excited about that seem to be, you know, nose in the books every single day, constantly writing the newest article about the biggest trend and where things are going within their surgical specialty. And then you have others that, you know, they're, they're, they're keeping up, but maybe they're not digging in every day. Um, there's a difference within the provider world. We have to talk about that gradation. But from a consumer perspective, a patient perspective, how would we know? How, how do we measure that gradation? How, how, how do you then create shopability? All right. So think about getting your haircut. Think about getting your oil changed. Think about buying a car. All these things have a Yelp review, a Google review. You have reference points. You have friends to talk to. But when it comes to providers, it's hard to get down to objective scoring. Right. So it's very hard to tell who you should go to for what. Insurance companies have a lot of that information. And it's a matter of empowering the purchaser, empowering the individual on how to make those choices. But that's where you start getting into these conflicts of interest, right? Think about the largest employer in any state. It's typically an insurance company, a health system, or Walmart. So if you're an insurance company and your largest client commercially is the largest health system, that health system, all their employees, they're carrying your insurance card. Do you think that that insurance company is going to tell all the local employers, hey, by the way, that big health system that also is a commercial client of mine, yeah, they're not that high quality, right? Or they're really high cost. The amount of conflicts of interest is insane as you begin to peel apart mm -hmm. what's really going on within healthcare. Yeah. And I think we'll touch on that a little bit later, maybe when we talk about Medicare for all, which is a super hot topic. I know you addressed it in your book, but before we get there, you talked about um, a lot of spending going on in healthcare and how one thing that I found interesting in your book, you kind of reframed it for me in the sense where healthcare is one of the largest industries in the U.S. And it's kind of that um, one of the industries that continues helping the U.S. grow just because it's such a large employer. You were saying it's one of the largest employers, usually in every state, if it's not a Walmart or something else. And um I just found that an interesting reframe, but still we spend a lot and our results aren't nearly as good as other countries who spend like a fraction of what we spend. So why is that? And like, are we trying to fix that? What do we do about that? Yeah. You know, first and foremost, you're getting to a point which I hit, which was that, you know, about one in seven Americans is employed by the U.S. healthcare system. And so you take that kind of put it off to the side and then go out on Google and type anywhere the amount of healthcare inefficiency currently in U.S. healthcare. Um, and you'll find anything from 10, 20 to 50 percent of the spending can be seen as fraudulent, wasteful or abuseful. Right. So you're like fraud, waste and abuse somewhere between 10 and 50 percent. Right. Uh, of the total expenditure. And you think one in seven Americans is employed. And so if you were to tie those two things together, you'd say one in seven Americans is employed by 10 to 50% waste, right? That really is unsettling. Um, and you have to think about the fact that, is that going to change? I mean, what president, what leader, what company is really going to lead the change to say, we got to fire all these nurses. We got to get rid of all these doctors. Oh, all those people with those MHAs. Yeah, the folks, the, the administrative officers. Yeah, we got to get rid of them. Like, you're not going to see that because it just supports too many folks. So then I have to kind of drill down a level and say, OK, what's what is enabling that? 
And what is enabling that is a number of different things where it's just this convoluted nature of reimbursements, of people justifying investments in new areas. I mean, right now, we're going to see probably a six percentage increase in healthcare expenditure going into 2022. And you sit there and wonder, how can that be possible? 6% coming out of the year we just had with this pandemic, right? Insurance companies have done pretty well because folks weren't using care right during the pandemic. They were still collecting premiums. So why the heck is it still going up 6%? Mm-hmm. But that immediately tells you it's not the insurance company that's the proxy. It's what's behind it. And when you start hearing that all the local hospitals realize that telehealth is the wave of the future and that digital health is where everybody needs to orient themselves. And we all have to have virtual first primary care offerings and we all need to have doctor at home. We have to have the ability to text the patient. This infrastructure is not cheap. It's not light. So as health systems are retrofitting themselves for this next generation, well, who gets that bill? The insurance company in a lot of ways, right? Because you're going to see increased reimbursement rates needed to justify some of that bill. And then the insurance company reflects that in higher premium cost. So oftentimes people say, oh, I'm anti-insurance company. It's like, well, I wouldn't really be anti-bank if I had a problem with the banking institution's relationships with the other community members, right? I would probably lean and look towards the community members and say, you're a not-for-profit health system in my local city. Why are you paying so-and-so X amount of dollars? Or why are you needing $200 million for digital health investments? Why weren't you doing this before? Right? And I think during the pandemic, we just shined a light on the fact that we've been spending a lot of money on healthcare and we weren't ready for the worst of it. Right? So what were we ready for? Um, and, and it's bringing a lot of unsettling conversations up. I know that was a long-winded answer to Yeah. Question. One of the things I got from that was that it seems like as we progress with our growth and new technologies, new incentives, new different ways to deliver healthcare, we kind of just add on to what we already have instead of kind of trimming the bloat and kind of trying to reduce costs in that way. We just keep adding. So some people are still using the old system. Some people are switching to the new system. So things are kind of all over there. And one of the things that goes on with that is that you need administrators and different people to take care of all those. And you mentioned MHAs. And I know that administrators, the amount of administrators in medicine has skyrocketed versus Mm -hmm. the amount of actual providers. So can you speak to that a little bit? I know you mentioned it in your book a little bit. So yeah, I mean, this is what this is the problem is that as we're looking to evolve, it, it does seem like we are just adding more and more people and processes instead of taking things out. You know, so one of the rules that I've always had within any of the innovation work that I've done is that the workflow must be neutral. So workflow neutral adjustments for any provider. So if I'm going to add something to the workflow, I have to take something out or automate something. Um, I don't think enough people act with that type of deliberate focus because what you see is we just add new teams all the time. You know, I always joke that, you know, API, which is application programming interface, right? So that's the that's the ability for us to tie different technologies together through kind of common source code. Um, and, you know, a, a friend of mine I used to work with says, you know, the, the P that's supposed to stand for programming, I think it stands for person, right? Every single time you hear API, you hear of a new person that has to be involved in the conversation. And so, for a lot of reasons, we create new jobs just to get to the future. 
And again, in no other industry would this be justifiable. But I think that what we have within healthcare is the ability to go, oh, shoot, we need some more people. Let's increase it a percentage. Let's increase it two percentage. We don't have the pressure where we have people saying, you know, if you were making Ford trucks, mm-mm. I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to spend $100,000 this year on a Ford truck when last year it was $90,000. Mm-hmm. We just wouldn't allow that. Yeah. And it seems that now we're just paying for that old truck, the 90000 and the 100000 which is why it keeps going. And it's just like a never-ending loop. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. Okay, so we've talked a lot about insurance already, and um, there's a lot to talk about with insurance. <laughs> this episode could go on for three hours, but one of the things I want to have you clarify as someone who knows the space is kind of the different healthcare models, why some work, why some don't, why some plans work, why some don't, and why there are so many different plans. Well, that is a tough question to answer in the time that we have, but I can (laughs) break it down to this. There's a lot of derivatives within health insurance, and I'll kind of just go through a really simple hierarchical tree, right? So when you have insurance, typically you can break it into government-funded right, or private, uh, commercial, right? So government-funded is everything that is like Medicaid, Medicare. There's a lot of derivatives within that. There's things like Medicare Advantage. Um, you have within Medicaid, some states, MCOs, managed care organizations, all sorts of stuff on the government-funded side. And on the commercial side, the two biggest buckets I break it into is fully insured, which is what most people always think of when they hear insurance. They think, oh yeah, I pay three, four, five hundred dollars a month and everything's covered with that insurance carrier. And then they're self-insured, which is really based on employers saying, you know what? I'm going to handle most of the financial risk. I just need an insurance company to provide me a network of providers. And I need somebody who can kind of adjudicate the claims as they come in. But I'm going to hold all the financial reserves on my side. Um, What we see in the country right now is a growing proliferation of that self-funded uh, vertical. And then, you know, typically when you look at the types of insurance products, there really is two big families that you can kind of play within. There is this HMO type model, and then there's just like EPO, PPO type model. The biggest thing to know is it really comes down to how much control are you willing to allow the insurance company and or provider to exert on you, the purchaser of the health insurance um, uh, product. And so when you look at an HMO, people, you typically hear gatekeeper model, right? Well, who's the gatekeeper? It's typically a primary care provider that's saying whether or not you need to go to a specialist. That is just another form of utilization management, by the way, right? It's just putting somebody else in a seat to say, hey, you're accountable for this. Um, Mm -hmm. In Southern California, these HMO models come with downside financial risk. So you'll tell the provider, hey, amongst your, you know, 25,000 lives that are attributed to you, we expect the cost to be X. And if the cost comes in above X, you're going to have to pay for that provider, So now the provider has a lot of financial incentives not to drive up the cost of care, not to do things that are unnecessary, to focus on prevention 
right? That is why it's so magical when you get these uh, uh, incentives aligned and you free the providers to do what's right, which might not be driving more utilization, coding more, billing more. It might actually be keeping the patient at home and, and having them determine ways to care for themselves. And then also on the PPO, EPO front, those are just typically your broader options. They're typically more expensive. They have broader networks and they have less control mechanisms built within them. So there's a lot of derivatives. And I'll tell you, even when I worked in the state of Pennsylvania, our insurance company had somewhere between 25 and 35% market share. And we had over 10,000 product variants. So if you just wow. extrapolated that, you could say that there are somewhere between you know, 30 and 50,000 commercial insurance products just within the state of Pennsylvania. I mean, it's, it's pretty mm -hmm. great. From the perspective of the consumer, kind of why do people pay different amounts for the insurance? And um, I guess, what are they getting differently in those different packages? Because it seems that everyone just pays like whatever amount on top of their employer or whatever their employer has. But what do they pay for? What's the difference between these? Yeah, so this is the biggest problem when, you, when, you're, when you're talking just about the commercial space. So let's talk about that because that's where you're going to see the broadest variance in terms of who's paying for what. Mm -hmm. So within the commercial space, there's a few really key ingredients that go into this. So first off, it's how you're purchasing it. If you're purchasing it, purchasing it through an employer versus as an individual, I think that's a, that's a major difference. Think about that. If there's 10,000 employees that are all coming in collectively to negotiate a rate with a large insurance company versus an individual, like anything in life, if you got more weight, more leverage, right? you're going to have an ability to negotiate a better rate. On top of that, there's something called an insurance broker, also insurance consultant, insurance producer. Um, these are these uh, individuals and professionals who are there to help the employer understand all of their options and also you know, kind of serve as a check and balance mechanism against the insurance company. And so you have all these different people coming into a room negotiating rates. And the thing about it is when you're looking at a new employer that's coming to you as an insurance company and saying, we would like your product. If you have experience, as we say, um, what that means is we know that within your pool of uh, beneficiaries. Maybe you have some folks that are on end-stage renal disease, um, on dialysis three times a week. You know that's going to cost more than $100,000 a year for a commercial patient. So you can begin to plan for some of these costs. And what you do is you spread that risk amongst that employer. Um, and so depending upon where you work, depending upon the type of work that you're in, depending upon the product, and what you want within that product. So some companies want a diabetes prevention program. Some companies don't. Um, all of that then gets kind of built in. The problem is most individuals are not the purchasers of health insurance. It's their company. Mm -hmm. So it's that one HR benefits manager who's the person leaning in making a decision with the insurance broker or consultant then directly purchasing with one or multiple insurance companies. And that's really what decides the fate for you know, the thousands of employees. And then the worst part, all their dependents. So the kids and the spouses, right, everyone else, you're getting what's given from that company. So there's a lot of big decision making at the very top that gets spursed down. Yeah, it sounds incredibly complex. And this is why I think a lot of people don't know what's going on when it comes to insurance because, um, yeah, there's just a lot going on. And one of the things that we talked about is these trends in healthcare. And um, one of them you said, I think the growing segment of that was the self-funded insurance or the self-funded, uh, what was it, you buyer? 
Yeah, no, self-funded, self-insured employer. Yep, it's great. Yeah, okay. So that, and just for a clarification, that means that's the employer who's still purchasing the insurance and that's what's growing. Am I correct on that? Correct. They're holding the financial risk. So instead of saying, here's all of our money for all the employees and their dependents, you insurance company manage all that, that would be a fully insured situation. So if the cost that they were expecting goes too high on a fully insured product, the insurance company has to cover that. On a self-insured or self-funded product, if the cost goes too high above what you were planning for the year, the in- employer has to cover that, not the insurance company. Got it. That's what's okay. growing because employers are saying, you know what? I think I might be able to do it better. And so they're putting yeah. a little pressure on the insurance company saying, I'm going to bet on myself that I can manage this cost in a different way. For sure. So these are some of the things that <laughs> I still need to clarify because I don't fully understand them. And hopefully that clarification helps some of our listeners back home. I'm learning with you all as well. Um, so when we're talking about these trends, one of the things you talk about in your book is that you think that um, more uh, people should not be getting insurance through their employer or employer tied insurance is not necessarily the way we want to go. Because what happens when people get um, unemployed? What happens during global pandemic when people suddenly lose all their insurance? They need that care because maybe they got affected by the pandemic. What do you do then? So how do you see this trend shifting? Where do you think we should go? And at the end of that, if you want to add on, um, how does value-based reimbursement change things and trends? Well, that's great. I mean, you hit the nail on the head, which is that the highest level, the worst thing you can do is tie coverage to employment. Because we all know that then when you're unemployed, you don't have coverage or you have something where you're, you have coverage, but you're relatively underinsured. Right. And Mm -hmm. and that even happens in the employer space. Yeah. Everyone's heard about these high deductible health plans. Right. Oh, well, the deductible is five thousand bucks as an individual. You hit that and then we'll take care of everything thereafter. You can use something like an HSA, a health savings account, Mm -hmm. right, to help pay for that deductible. Um, And it feels and looks good. Here's the startling fact. The average high deductible amount for a family of four is right around ten to twelve thousand dollars. The average savings for an American family is right around ten to twelve thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So think about that. You're telling somebody you're insured, but you're gonna have to spend your life savings before we were gonna kick in with our insurance. That's that's what I would yeah. call underinsured. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think that tying it to the employer, that is something that is quite archaic, right? We did that coming out of World War II for a number of different reasons. And I really do think that the country needs to move away from that. And I think one of the other reasons why is because of this, the, the conflicts of interest that you have, right? Think about an employer with 500 employees. It's one individual at the very top or a group of individuals that are making the decision on behalf of everybody. Um, and from, from my perspective, it creates way too much opportunity for value to be lost because you don't know what I'm dealing with financially. You don't know what I want as an individual. And I had this large employer state representing me. And what's happening is there's a lot of conflicts of interest, but worse yet, there's also a lot of perverse incentives. Okay. Um, and, and to just put it at a high level, there in some states, insurance companies can actually pay brokers to help retain business. What does that mean? That means an insurance broker who's representing company ABC that you work for could, might get a bonus if he doesn't take company ABC out to market to talk to other insurance companies and instead stays with insurance company A. He gets paid more to not shop it. Right? Mm-hmm. That actually happens. Now, most brokers are impartial 
agents. They're ones that are constantly looking for the best value and they would never dream of doing something that does not create value for their clients, right? Because they also know, hey, if I don't create value, you're just going to go find another insurance broker. Mm -hmm. So there are some things that kind of offset that, but it happens and it happens way more than people know. And so I like to just call that out first and foremost. Then how does that kind of tie into like this value-based reimbursement movement? So the two things are kind of distantly related, but really what you're talking about now is how the insurance company pays providers. And so instead of paying on a fee-for-service uh, mechanism, which is what the plurality of payments are made on today, right? You're paying when services are rendered. Well, think about that. It doesn't take a genius to know, okay, that's a perverse incentive because if you're keeping a population healthy, if that population doesn't need high-cost elective procedures, um, or even you're choosing just the site of care. Hey, I'm going to keep this patient that needs this colonoscopy in a freestanding clinic versus a you know facility-owned inpatient location. Um, the cost difference is massive, right? So depending upon how much that provider is going to get being paid, one can only think that a provider might unintentionally guide a patient towards areas where there's higher reimbursement. So what value-based reimbursement does is it aligns the reimbursement with the outcome. Right. So the healthier that patient stays, the quality metrics that you're able to hit um, and even the cost targets that you're able to maintain, uh, you get rewarded for that. So this is really a, a mechanism to help providers offset the demand destruction that happens when you keep a population healthy. Right. Population healthy. They're not coming in. They don't need things. If you could just talk to a patient on a phone call once a month and make sure that they're eating right and that they're exercising mentally, that they're, they are where they need to be, um, that's probably going to you know, prevent that $2,000 avoidable ED visit. Is that really good for the business, though, of the health system? I don't know. Right. So this is where those, those perverse incentives come in. So value-based reimbursement is all about fixing that. So how does that relate back to the topic that you brought up before? Well, employers want to see the cost curve bend. They, they cannot continue to afford this. As we said, Starbucks spending more money on health insurance benefits than coffee beans. That's not right. And you can look across many employers, for example, it's just like that. And what I would say is em employers are looking at insurance companies and saying, what are you doing to bend the cost curve? And one of the biggest ideas that's come out in the last 10 years has been around value-based reimbursement. So insurance companies have said, listen, employer, I hear what you're saying. I'm going to go out in the market and I'm going to change the way that we pay providers. That way it's more aligned with outcomes and value that I know is important to you. So that's kind of how the two things relate and what's going on. For sure. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in your book, you also mentioned how VBR seems like uh, VBR being value-based reimbursement. Um, it seems like it's an ideal and it should be what we would be going towards. However, it's not necessarily the best practically because when you look at value, you're not looking at things in like a week or two weeks. That value really shows itself in several years time span maybe. And in that case, you're still waiting for your payment because if you're being uh, reimbursed based on value, you don't see that value for one to two years. So um, you kind of talk about how it's not necessarily ideal. So what do you think ideal is and how do you see those trends moving forward? And how do we like bridge that gap between fee for service and value-based reimbursement? Yeah, I'm happy you're calling this out. You know, so just to paraphrase it quite a bit, because I don't expect everyone to go like read this book afterwards. Um, 
Essentially, Which, by the way, I would recommend you guys read this book because it is pretty good. I found value just from skimming it. I'm going to go back and read it. Hey, look, and I was I was pumped last week, but someone told me that I was, you know, the youngest healthcare executive. And I also quoted Tupac and Allen Iverson in my book. I was like, <laughs> All right, stay true to me. So <laughs> at least you, know, you have a authentic voice in this book. Um, but what I would say is, is the problem with value-based reimbursement that where things start to crack is when you start looking around metrics of total cost of care. We all know that we got to manage the total cost of care. That's what we got to manage in order to get this country going the right direction. The problem within that, though, is it's not just about utilization. It's not about how many people go to a hospital, how many people go to the emergency department, what was avoidable, what was preventable. Right? It's also the unit cost. Why is it when I go to one hospital for a procedure, it's $10,000. When I go to a different hospital, it could be $40,000. That unit cost variance is very real. And that exists today. Nobody understands that, right? Except for the insurance company and the healthcare provider. Many people don't even have purview into seeing those numbers, let alone understand how they affect them as an individual. So that's why I say value-based reimbursement is it's the right first step, but it's hard long-term because, you know, as you go down that three to five-year path of the provider in value-based reimbursement, naturally you begin to shift and you begin to say, I need you to take on more and more financial risk provider. You need to be more accountable for the financial outcomes as much as the quality and clinical outcomes. As you begin to shift to that, well, that provider does not have influence on the unit cost of the hospitals around them. So I would see some primary care doctors that are located right next to a very low cost hospital, and they would do better in the value-based reimbursement program than a provider next to a high cost hospital, naturally, because the people within their community were just going to that high cost location. That had nothing to do with the provider, right? So there's ways that you can right balance that, but it's just, it's a fragment within that value-based model that has not been fixed yet. And so in terms of an ideal future state, I definitely think that we have to continue down the path of value-based reimbursement. But where we are today is just a stepping stone, right? Um, there's no question, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of uh, of the peace of mind that this is an unequivocal step that we all have to take, which is going to be that providers need to be paid based upon the value that they create. And I tend to find that the providers that are most scared of that are scared of that for one of three reasons. One, they don't trust the measurement logic because it doesn't make sense to them, hasn't been explained, right? Two, the measurement logic is moving. So the targets are moving so fast that it's like, well, how can I keep up with that, right? Or three, they're not a good provider and they know that in this type of reimbursement model, they're going to get called out for it. Um, and, and people are going to begin to say, you know what, we can't direct patients or revenue towards you because you're not what we need the provider um, you know, sector to stand for. And so there's all three of those are really tough discussions, right? But we have to be willing to have them. Um, and then the providers that are providing high value care and, and like to, to your specialty exactly, that are focused in things that are great long term. That's what you get into that ROI model, which is right now the insurance model set up. So it really only cares about things within the time frame that that's holding that member. Well, if an average member is with an insurance plan for only one to two years, right, then they churn, right? So the employer churns, they go to another place. So the F Humana, then you have Aetna, then you have the Blues, then you have United, right? You know all the big insurance carriers. As you switch, the value of some of the prevention work that we do, it doesn't pay out for two or three years, right? So the nutritional program that you installed, maybe it delayed the onset of type two diabetes by three years for that individual. Well, who really got that reward? 
did I get that reward in the first two years or did somebody get the reward because that diabetes wasn't, you know, flying high, driving utilization and avoidable cost? Um, because when that patient shifted to another uh, insurance carrier, they get to enjoy the benefits of what the previous insurance carrier did. And the problem is we that's not a sustainable business model, right? Handing your value off to your competitors. Yeah. So we have to think about some things that are paragnostic, that we as a community say, we need this just for everybody. It's the right thing to do. It just saves cost. You know, I always love, I was at a conference recently and um, these Republicans and Democrats, people were being really political in the, in the conversation. And I said, you know that at the end of the day, Republicans and Democrats all agree upon the same thing when it comes to health care, which is we're going to have to pay for this no matter what. Either you pay for it up front and you subsidize things like Obamacare so that folks can get coverage or they don't have coverage. They go to a hospital and then they receive care. And it's uncompensated because the hospital has no one to bill for it. You're not going to bill the poor individual that's uncovered and unemployed. And guess what? They just raise the reimbursement rates on the commercial members who are using that same community. Yeah. So inevitably, you will pay for this, either democratically or Republican. You are going yeah. to pay for this. You have to just decide which one. And for me and for most, I would rather do the upfront prevention mechanism because it's also ethically the right thing to do for a human being to another human being. For sure. And this is would be a perfect transition into Medicare for all. And I do want to save some time for that because it's a huge topic. But I have one quick question. I guess two quick questions. Forgive me for this. If it's a little naive, but why don't insurance companies just kind of reimburse those preventive things a little bit more? I know when you talk to physicians, why they don't talk more to patients about counseling and like whether it's uh, exercising, nutrition, whatever it is. And I like how you mentioned social determinants of health in your book, whether it's um, addressing those. Why don't insurance companies kind of incentivize those more versus those procedural based? type things. Yeah. Isn't that just like an easy fix right there? It is. It is. And it's something that we've tried. So one of the things that we've done is we've actually decreased and taken out the uh, cost for most people when they're looking at preventative services. So for instance, we want you to get your annual checkup. There's no copay for that, right? As long as you're getting that preventative screening, we're not going to bill you for that. So trying to introduce more of that, I think is important. The problem is that as you increase the reimbursement in these spaces, what we tend to find initially is this kind of Fitbit crew. It's the people that already have the colorimeter, they already are tracking their steps, and they're the first ones to show up going, I'm ready, right? I want to talk about, I want to get my free nutritionist uh, visit. And you're like, hold on, hold on. It's not you, the person who just worked out five times this week uh, and is counting <laughs> your calories. I need to talk to the folks behind you that are polychronic, you know, and they're sick. We need them to engage. So, it's not only about the insurance carrier, you know, creating the incentives, but it's also about getting the engagement from the right demographics. That is the hard piece, right? So we've already taken that first step and made some pretty big investments there. But I think now it's going to be about this payer and provider collaboration going into communities and saying, how can I make this financially sweet for you, the provider, to really work on this community? But then again, if those community members are shifting from one insurance carrier to the next, I need multiple payers to come in on the same initiative and it needs to be payer agnostic, right? So as the community member changes from one insurer to the next, we all glean the value from that. 
For sure. I think one of the issues that is currently ongoing in medicine from my perspective is that people aren't really going to primary care just because it doesn't reimburse at the same rate. And you see people going more into those specialties, whether it's uh, like surgery, you're getting super reimbursed for all your procedures you're doing, or just like a, for example, in physical medicine rehab, someone who does uh, spinal injections, they're going more towards that because it reimburses more. And that's really exacerbating the physician shortage that we have because our uh, primary care shortage that we have, sorry. And that's kind of creating another problem because now you have other professions who are also trying to fill that gap and it just creates this entire mess. So um, I think if we can align those incentives really well and kind of push primary care and make sure that we do get those physicians reimbursed while still reaching the right demographic with those preventive services would be in a little bit of a better place. Yeah. Obviously, that's not going to happen right away. But that's, but that's where value-based reimbursement actually has a chance. So you have a primary care doctor who's attributed, say, on average, 2,000 active charts within their practice, right? What I can say to that primary care provider is, hey, if you help me with the avoidable utilization of the hospital, right? So don't go to the emergency department just because there wasn't Saturday hours available at the primary care office, right? There wasn't on-call staff or after-hours staff. So that patient went to the ED for $2,000 when they could have gone to $150 PCP visit, right? If you the primary care doctor can help decrease that type of avoidable utilization. When a patient gets discharged, make sure within seven days they're following up with their specialist. If you, the primary care provider, can help me with that, I can pay you percentages of the savings. That's called shared savings, right? So if you avoid a $10,000 admission to the hospital, I might be able to give you four or $5,000 for that. And so there's a way to make it financially extremely lucrative for a primary care provider. I mean, I've worked with primary care providers that make a quarter million to $350,000 a year, right? On average, every year. But it's because they know how to manage all the downstream stuff. Let me say it like this. PCPs, they typically represent about 5% of the total cost of care. A hospital, mm -hmm. around 50 to 60% of the yeah. cost of care. You got to figure out, hey, if you represent such a small amount, how do you influence the larger amount? I love it. Hopefully we can get a solution to that and we can, I guess we already have somewhat of a solution. Hope we can roll that out to a larger um, percentage of primary cares that start going that way. But now let's uh, get into Medicare for all, or just, um, I guess, government sponsored healthcare. And you talk about in your book, how that healthcare cannot necessarily be exactly like a free market. And you can't just do it like that because like you say, the, there's no like, um, my terms are going to be terrible here, but like, Patients have to go to the physician. They can't shop around when something happens. They're bleeding. They have to go. They can't go. I'm going to go over here because they might um, not necessarily make it. And you also can't just see the prices of what you're looking for. Like you don't go to the office and they have all the prices for everything listed out there. Right. But also on the other side of there, you say that government sponsored insurance also isn't necessarily the answer nationwide just because um, you won't see as many innovations you won't see as much like fluidity of care. There'll be a little bit more administrative bloat. And you make the comparison to like, would you rather go to Amazon, Netflix, or all these people which have great customer service or the DMV, TSA, all of these places. And I liked how you kind of put that there, but where's the middle ground? What do you think about healthcare for all? Oh, well, look, I think like, like you're saying, there's kind of like these two sides of the spectrum. And when you go to the free market side of the spectrum, you, you just nailed it. You, we're using the same jargon, right? asymmetry of information. I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, like patients don't know what they need. I can tell you if I go into a dealership uh -huh. and someone says, you need a Lamborghini, I can go, mm, no, I don't. Uh, I know that. <laughs> I also know the price of the Lamborghini, right? I'm like 300,000 bucks. No, I'm good. 
right? Um, so there's price transparency, there's symmetry of information, there's there's elastic demand. So the higher the price goes, the further out I'm going to move away from that product, right? The cheaper it goes, the more demand comes in. I mean, the rising cost of a CAT scan, do you really think less people get CAT scans? I mean, no, it's inelastic demand. I'm coming no matter what. Um, so that is what makes the free market piece not work. Now, Medicare for all, it cannot work. I mean, people have to just sit down with a big whiteboard and just work the numbers. It won't work. Most hospitals are typically somewhere between 20 and 40% of their revenue is coming off of government funded business. It can go as high as 60% is government funded business. And what most hospital executives will tell you is that they cross subsidize their high costs, right? Their infrastructure, their call structure onto the commercial block. Why? Well, because Medicare pays me 100% for this and at commercial rate, I get 300% for the same procedure. So I can run at a loss on my government funded business and I can make up my profit on the commercial side. If commercial went away and you were to drop this to Medicare reimbursement rates across the board, hospitals would not survive. Their cost structure is such that it is too high right now to run a hospital. And I'm not saying that that's right. That could be wrong, right? Are they running as efficiently as they need to be? A lot of your listeners would probably say, uh, damn, no, there's no way in hell, <laughs> right? But I can still sit there and say yeah. today, they also employ a lot of people. Your largest local employer is probably a health system. So are you really going to go in that health system? Are you the politician? Really going to walk into that house and go, this is where the biggest amount of my constituents works, right? My local community right here. And I'm going to tell you guys, we're changing the reimbursement rates. They're dropping substantially and everyone's getting paid the same. Well, what about a provider organization that is doing groundbreaking research versus an organization that is focused only on you know, specialty care and surgeries? Well, we're going to pay them both the same. Right? But what one organization is driving us into the future, the other one is more of like a fee-for-service machine and just doing as many procedures as possible. Mm -hmm. Both of them add value to our community, but just in different ways. And so when you start messing around with equalizing reimbursement rates, it breaks the, the first point that we said, which is all providers are not created equal. And number two, it breaks the current cost structure of some of our largest employers in our local community, which is they're making their money right now off of the employer-sponsored health insurance. It's not sustainable, but it's just the truth. So it's kind of like Jenga, right? You can pull that block if you want and go for Medicare for All. I don't think that's going to work moving forward. I still think that you need a commercial line of business that pays higher percentages than the Medicare side. That being said, it cannot continue to climb at the rate that it's climbing. And it just absolutely destroys wage growth when, they, when you're looking at the commercial employed segments because you're removing any real incentive to work, right? My, you know, I live in California right now and I think I'm doing you know, fairly well and, and my fiance is doing fairly well. And, and we feel like we're right in the middle of the pack, right? And we bust our butts. I and mean, here we are on Sunday. This is the only time we had to talk this week, <laughs> right? I know you're, you're hustling too. It's like, really? Like this is, this is how it's going to be? That, that's, it, it can be demoralizing for some. Yeah. So with all that being said, kind of not being able to go the full government sponsored or the full um, company sponsored or private sponsored, not being sustainable. Where is that middle ground? Do you think that the government should take more of a role in this and that private companies should take a step back? Or should we just try to fix the bloat on the private side and the government side? What do we do? 
Yeah. I mean, this is where it gets into like the panacea for how do we fix healthcare. And I, yeah. can't, I can't say that I, I have it or I know all the answers, but there's some things that I kind of see as, as non-regret moves. So one thing would be that, you know, I think about things like Medicaid, where over 80% of Medicaid is federally funded, right? Yet we administer it at a local level. So we saw this a lot during the pandemic, where depending upon what state you were in, when you became employed due to unforeseen events of this pandemic, you may or may not have been eligible for coverage in Medicaid. That's wild to me that 80% of the dollar came from a federal agency, and yet a local agency was the one to tell you whether or not you were eligible for something. You know, mm -hmm. In my mind, I, I'm all for the separation of church and state. I'm all for the you know, power to the people at a local level. That being said, you can't have big government ideas and small government implementation. It just doesn't mix well. So mm -hmm. I would have fixed that. If you're going to have federal programs, roll them out federally. Right. Roll them out at a national level. Everyone's eligible for the safety net at this level. We're not going to change it based on yeah. the state that you live in, because, again, marginalizes people. Number two, mm -hmm. I would say that for sure we should break up these large blocks of buying insurance through a single point of contact at an employer and then making all the decisions. I would break it back down to the individual, similar to auto insurance and other things where you are required to have insurance. Absolutely. You're going to pay a higher rate than maybe a um, Medicaid or Medicare eligible product. Right. Uh, but at the same time, there still is that commercial edge to it. You can shop around, you can choose, but you must carry something, especially if you are working. I would also go so far, this would make me unpopular, that some of the benefits of a commercial health insurance plan should be sweeter than some of the benefits that are offered to able-bodied individuals that are on government-funded programs, right? We have to create an incentive to work. We have to create incentive to make the economy move, right? If too many people have an incentive to sit back, we're seeing it right now. Uh, how many states have talked about the incentives that are put in place for unemployment that have lasted longer than the pandemic and they can't get workers to come back? right? It's just economics. It's numbers. It makes sense. If I can make 75% of what I used to make and not work at all, why am I going to go back? So you got to be conscientious of that. Mm -hmm. I think the third point that I would highlight and the last point, uh, and obviously I've talked about this forever, is that if we are going to expand anything that's a, that of a federal program right now, what I really think is an interesting model is the Medicare Advantage model, right? Medicare Advantage is really interesting because you're covering the same demographic as Medicare. Um, but the biggest difference is that you essentially privatized it. So you've handed, the government has handed the financial risk off to a private organization. And that private organization is still allowed to innovate and think differently. So Amazon or Netflix, right? The example that you gave from the book, right? If they were to develop a contract with the government, right? How would that then work? So my best parallel would be compare TSA to clear, right? If you go to clear and you get everything done, <laughs> or I cut the entire line, right? So you've, you've brought private yeah. innovation into a government program. And as long as you can run that as a parallel and allow people to use that as an option, you know, again, if they can afford it, um, that is another 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 avenue to think about. Medicare Advantage is also a growing segment, and it's something that can allow a lot of these health insurance plans to stay intact, which is very important. Because as we transform healthcare, 
We don't want to then see this mass exodus from the sector and a bunch of unemployed people. So I'm a big fan of things that get us to a future of sustainability while at the same time keeping people employed and utilizing the infrastructure that's been built that has been extremely costly from previous years. And I guess I'll leave you at the last point. I guess the big question here. Call oh, go ahead. If you see yeah, go ahead. call it out. <laughs> For sure. I think that's very important to do because that's how we move forward. If you see something that's not right, then call bullshit. Say either I can do this better. Or I think someone else can do this better. Either find a way to get it done yourself or vote for the people who you think will get it done or put your money where your mouth is and kind of kind of pay those people. Maybe. I don't know, whatever it is. But um, the big question here is, do you think we can do that all at the same time moving forward? Or is that something we kind of have to build on the side, take over whatever we have now? Or oh, <laughs> who knows, right? Best question ever, right? Because I, personally, I, I think that you have to go bimodal. I think you have to do both at the same time. Um, and I think that you have to create an engine while this other plane is still moving that people can move on to. Um, the, we've tried this incremental innovation uh, in the past, but we're going to you know, gently do this, gently do this. The problem is, is that the political windows come and go. Um, the, the stakeholders mm-hmm. that are leading these companies that say, okay, yeah, our vision is aligned with this. Well, that CEO gets fired and this new board decides yeah. it's a different priority. And so there's too many things that are changing to say incrementally we're going to get there. I think we have to jump in the deep end of the pool and say we're going to build this thing out free of all the current kind of sunk cost fallacy, right? All we spent money here. We got to use what we've already built. Eh, I don't think so. I don't think that's the way we need to go. So as we build out that future state in that ideal efficiency or optimized efficiency, and then allow people to come on to it, I think that's the path to the future. Incremental innovation, I think, is very dangerous. It gives us a lot of big headlines. It gives us a lot of press releases. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't actually drive change. As we just saw, the invention of digital health and virtual care, you would have thought that that would have driven down healthcare costs. But yet, some way or another, it's being used as a justification for a 6% increase going into 2022. Yep. You add bloat, add more things to it, and we end up with the same cascading problem. Well, thank you for this episode. There is so much information in this. As we wrap up, what are kind of some of the key points that you want our listeners to take home? Keeping maybe a little bit of prevention in mind because we are the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Yeah. What would you want people to take home from this? Well, I think, number one, follow the dollars, right? If you just look at how dollars kind of flow within healthcare, you will immediately see that there is a strong incentive to have a backbone based in prevention, right? I mean, there's no question. I think the only thing I could say is one level above that, which is like the root cause. As you get into some of those social determinants, how can we prevent the things that we need to even help uh, avoid from the very beginning? Um, So for me, as long as you follow the dollars, things begin to make sense. Because as you see them kind of coming down the stream, you know who's making money off of what. And, And it's not that hard to then see that there's a lot of money made off of sick care and not healthcare or well care, right? Um, so I think that's number one. Number two, as you said, and I said, you know, I think calling out things that you know are wrong. We have a unique moment in society where you have all of these millennials coming up. Every single one of us is, has a phone, right? We have an ability to communicate with large networks of people instantaneously. We have to activate that. Um, that's probably one of the things that I am most 
um, bullish on is the fact that we can communicate so quickly and that we're going to be growing up with, at least with most of my friends that work in the industry that are our, you know younger demographics, um, they're not scared to call out the kind of sacred animal in the room, right? They're like, yeah, I get that this was important before, but like this is causing problems and it's not fair. So I love the kind of unabashed version that I'm getting from younger demographics that are coming up into leadership roles right now. And I can only hope that that continues. And the third and last piece that I would call out is that we need clinicians to lead the way. All right. Um, as many degrees as I have, as much schooling as I focused on, I will never have that MDDO. Right? I will never be that doctor in the room. I will never be that advanced practitioner. I just won't ever be that individual. And it's much more compelling when you have a physician to lead, right? Uh, when you have a clinician to lead. And so having more conversations like this, I, I just applaud you as well, right? You're steering into a topic, and you even said during the prep, Hey, there's a lot of stuff in here that I'm not going to be familiar with. And that to me gave me faith that your listeners are probably feeling the same way. And so any way that I can help, I certainly want to, but we have to cross those boundaries because that's the only way that we get to that payer provider future where the incentives are completely aligned. And so for that, I applaud you. And I, and I really am grateful for everyone that's listening because it means they're doing the same thing. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I really value our time, really value this conversation. I think there's a lot to gain from this, both for me and for our listeners. So um, is there anything you want our listeners to do other than go buy your book, which I've talked about several times? Can they find you on social media? Yeah. Um, it's just know if you buy the book, all profits are going to pay for people's care that are either uninsured or underinsured. So please know that right off the bat. Um, and then on top of that, yeah, LinkedIn's the best spot. So you can easily find me on LinkedIn, Jeb Dunkelberger. Uh, Rich and Dying has its own page as well. Uh, and that is where I typically have most of my conversations. And there's a lot of like-minded people. And it's really easy to connect everyone on that forum. So if you're more interested uh, to, to learn more, then please hit me up there. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.